the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. As much as we talk about the issue of radical Muslims, uh, what has happened in our relationship with uh, America and Islam, even even the church and Islam down through the years, um, it, it's been easy to be engaged in the process of fighting Muslims or fighting radical Islam. Uh, the problem is, as we're fighting them, are we doing anything to win them? Uh, you know, at the core, uh, we can all, I think, agree that this comes down to a heart issue. Um, how do we go about uh, not fighting Islam singularly, but engaging Islam in an effective means that uniquely from a Christian perspective can do something to change lives. Well, that is the topic of a new book written by my next guest. Um, he was born and raised in Lebanon, brings some unique perspective to all of this, uh, heartily uh, endorsed by our friend Hank Hanegraaff um, and uh, Christian Research Institute. He is George Husney. The new book is called Engaging Islam. And, George, great to have you on the program. Thank you very much for having me. You know, this is almost like, uh, you know, last stand at the OK Corral kind of relationship, certainly between uh, the West and Islam, and, and even more specifically for purposes of our conversation tonight, between the church and Islam. Um, I think that there's been um, a, a growing sense of fear and frustration uh, amongst the Christian community, as we've seen increased uh, uh, battles going on for uh, Christian freedom in many countries. We know what's happening with the Coptic Christians, for example, in Egypt right now and things of this sort. But, you know, in the end, uh, whether we're talking about Muslims or Buddhists or atheists or those that would consider themselves undecided, it really comes down to uh, the responsibility that we cannot avoid of the Church to, to reach out and love Muslims for Christ. Yes, you are absolutely right. I want to, at the outset, uh, say that there are two approaches, basically, to Islam. There's a political approach and there's a human approach. Of course, uh, politicians have to make decisions what to do with terror, what to do with the threats, and so on. But uh, there's a large body of uh, Christians and believers here who uh, encounter day-to-day many Muslims in the workplace, uh, in the marketplace, in schools, everywhere. And those people in the majority are not going to put a bomb around themselves and blow you up and blow themselves up. They're just ordinary human beings. So I like to separate between Islam as a system, which in my opinion as a system is evil and uh, frightening, but as people, uh, they're not, and we uh, need to love them and care about them and bring the gospel to them. All right, with that is kind of the... the, um setting of the stage, so to speak, the, the terms of, of engagement here. Let's talk about the challenge of engaging Islam. Uh, first, maybe you can kind of give us a profile. Uh, 
we, we hear about the radicalization of Islam, and there's an impression that this is representative of all of Islam across the world. Uh, help us, from your perspective, uh, George, gain some understanding. When we talk about Muslims, who are we talking about here? Well, from my experience of uh, 45 years working with Muslims and traveling all over the Muslim world, um, I see that the radicals are a minority, but they're the vocal minority. They're the ones who cause the, the news and trouble and all that. But the majority, 70 to 80 percent, are moderates or secular. And those people, their profile is just like the profile of any other human being. Uh, they want to go to work and go home to their families and raise a family and live in peace. But also there's something new, I believe, in the last 10 years, since September 11, 2001, that Muslims are beginning to uh, open their hearts to alternatives to Islam. There's a huge uh, influx of people into the church, into Christianity, uh, by the influence of radio and TV and uh, uh, Internet and, and the shuffling of people around the world by through globalization, traveling, and seeking education. We have almost a million international students in America. About 40% of them are Muslim. And they're coming face-to-face uh, -face with Christianity. So they're much more open than ever before. Are there aspects of Islam that are perhaps common to, say, Christianity in, in the sense that we have some Christians who were raised in a Christian home, all they've known is Christianity and the church mm -hmm. their entire life, um, and they're in some respects uh, maybe more Christians because they're following in their parents' footsteps. As I say, they've never really explored any other world religion, uh, the degree to which they might be engaged in the church, whether they're you know gung-ho active believers or just marginal Christians will vary from certainly from family to family. Then we have those that um, that came to Christianity, uh, and decidedly so, from either another religious practice or belief, or maybe none whatsoever that said, I've investigated the claims of Jesus Christ in the Bible, and I have come to accept those claims uh, as truth and, and engage in a vibrant personal relationship with Jesus Christ. What of the Muslims? Are, are there different flavors, so to speak, at that level? Well, definitely. Uh, pretty much every Muslim is a cultural Muslim. And then you add to it either political Muslims or religious Muslims. Uh, Islam as an identity um, e includes even people who are atheists. They don't believe in God, and yet they are called Muslim because that's their cultural identity. And then you come to the others who are religious. Some religious people uh, just uh, treat uh, religion as something that they want to do to gain forgiveness and gain heaven and so on. Others are political, and the religio-political group is the one that's most uh, dangerous in regard to terrorism and so on, because they base their politics on their religion. But not uh, all religious people are political, and that uh, leaves us with people just like in Christianity, very diverse, very different, uh, open-minded, uh, seeking to understand uh, the culture they're in, for example, the U.S. or Europe or where they may be going. That gives us many open doors to develop relationships and have friendships with them and share the gospel. And many of them are coming into our churches and uh, becoming Christians. <clears throat> if you've just joined the conversation tonight, uh, George Husney is with us tonight. A look at his new book, Engaging Islam. By the way, the, this book uh, newly 
published by Treeline Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. We'll take a time out at this juncture, come back to more of the conversation as we continue to understand the profile of um, the variety of different flavors, so to speak, of Islam. How do we go about reaching them with the gospel of Jesus Christ? All that and more as our discussion continues here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to our conversation. With me tonight is author George Husney. His book is called Engaging Islam. We're attempting to do that uh, just tonight. He serves, by the way, as an adjunct professor at Denver Seminary and is the founder and director of Horizons International, an outreach ministry to Muslims. Uh, A look tonight at uh, better understanding the profile of who Muslims are, And then uh, armed with that information, some tools to better engage and ultimately evangelize Muslims uh, in an effective way. Um, We talked a little bit about some of the the commonality, frankly, with the background, whether they're cultural, they've experienced or come into Islam through a family or might in some cases have uh, converted to it. It it strikes me um, as notable, uh, George, that we see... Islam tending to cut across a lot of cultural lines in that we have, well, the world's most populous Muslim nation is is not in the Middle East. It's in Indonesia. We have Arabs that are Muslims. We have Persians that are Muslims, although not all Persians are Muslims. Neither are all Arabs. That's correct. You are very true. Well, the biggest country in the world, I mean, a Muslim country is Indonesia. And the second biggest is more surprising is India. (laughs) So before we get to the Middle East, we have uh, uh, two or three major countries, uh, and then we come to Turkey and Persia and then Egypt and so on. How do we get past a problem that I think a lot of us have, um, certainly to a greater degree, uniquely as Americans in a post-9-11 environment, but for a lot of individuals that look at what Islam has done to our country, Mm-hmm. the violence, the unrelenting, unrepenting approach yeah. to all of this. This is not even a let's sit down and talk, can't we negotiate? This is our way or the highway kind of thing, you know, the the, right. the old adage within Islam that they're either going to, you know, convert in a friendly fashion or do so, uh, you know, at the point of a knife. Um, yeah. how, how do we as, as Christians and Americans move ourselves past what I think for a lot of us is an innate fear of Muslims? Well, the, uh, the solution uh, is to think of those terrorist activities as political uh, Islam. And uh, if you are a politician, of course, getting, uh, engage yourself in, on that level. Make sure the country is safe and protected. But most of us are not going to be in that position. Most of us are going to meet a Muslim on the street or in our workplace, and we need to uh, treat them with love. Let's not impose on them. Uh, the uh, the anger, the hatred, and so on that uh, belongs to the terrorists. Uh, I believe uh, friendship is um, a first step towards people. Most Muslims in America uh, feel uh, prejudiced against, feel that Christians don't love them, they hate them, uh, frown at them. If you see a woman veiled, uh, people uh, look away from her or gaze weirdly at her and so on. It would make a huge impact if you just go to a person like this and say hello 
And if there are guests in the country, welcome them to the country and begin to chat with them and even invite them over to your house. Uh, our purpose as Christians is to be light in darkness, light to the nations, and to love our enemies um, without being naive about it. But uh, there's plenty of uh, Muslims who are not frightening, who are not threatening us. Those people need Christ, and we need to share. Uh, before we share Christ, we share our meal, we share our uh, a handshake, we share a smile with them and develop a relationship with them. All right, let's talk about the development of that relationship. You know, oftentimes that has to begin, like in any case, when you're you're trying to reach someone, um, establishing some level of trust. Yes. Um, when there is fear, when there is lack of knowledge and understanding, um, mm-hmm. all of these elements conspire to create an atmosphere that is significantly lacking in trust. Uh, how do you advise folks to begin kind of crossing over this bridge and, and beginning to establish that sense of trust? Well, you, you'll know quickly when you begin to be friendly with somebody if they want to reciprocate or not. And uh, you can't guess uh, what agendas they have, but I believe we need to uh, anyway engage them uh, and become uh, friendly and friends with them. Um, let me get real. There are so many here. There are hundreds, even thousands in America who have to come to Christ. And I did a survey among 100 Muslim converts, and I asked them, what are the major factors that led you to become Christians? A hundred percent, every one of them answered some act of kindness or love by a Christian. Mm. And uh, there are others that ticked something else, for example, dreams and visions. Sixty percent of those hundred have had a, a dream or a vision. So typically I go to a Muslim now, even in a park, I say, have you had a dream of Jesus? And if they have, then they're wide open to discussing uh, about Christianity and why they had this dream. Maybe God is calling them. And oftentimes the dreams actually contain uh, a message, follow me, by uh, a man uh, dressed in a white robe and uh, walking away and looking back and ask them to follow him. So there are a lot of people who are curious, open, seeking. Uh, We can just engage them and find out uh, where they are. I call that diagnostics. You diagnose uh, who you're dealing with. And uh, if there's a reason not to trust, move on to somebody else you can trust. Let's pause on that point. When we come back, I want to get down to kind of the nitty-gritty. You know, as so often true when it comes to just good basic outreach or evangelism techniques, you know, find some kind of a common ground, um, some kind of a, a common ground upon which you can you can locate a starting point to get the dialogue going or to begin moving the dialogue toward things of the Scripture, things of the Lord. How do you find that common ground? Is there any? Many might argue there's none whatsoever, but is there really? Let's talk about this as we continue our conversation tonight. With me today is the author of a new book called Engaging Islam, George Husney. Back to more of our conversation as we continue. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
All right, welcome back to the program and to our conversation with uh, our guest tonight, George Husney. A look at engaging Islam, and uh, the book hardly endorsed, as I mentioned earlier, by um, Hank Hanegraaff. He serves, by the way, um, George does, as adjunct professor at Denver Seminary and is founder and director of Horizons International, an outreach to Muslims. Uh, no doubt in your ministry work, uh, George, um, as it is, I think, common for trying to reach out and, and share the love of the gospel with anyone, Finding some kind of commonality, some common ground is critically important. Explain to us, uh, for the uninitiated, George, the common ground, the starting points, uh, some of the keys that can be utilized if you want to share your faith in a loving, non-confrontational fashion with a neighbor, a co-worker, a friend that happens to be Muslim. Well, thank you for this question. It's very significant. Uh, when I approach Muslims, um, I find them much easier than a nominal Christian. Nominal Christians feel that they know enough. Many of them just argue and are skeptical, agnostics, and so on. Generally, Muslims believe in the existence of God. They don't really question his existence. They believe a lot of things that we also believe. They have beliefs about Jesus, about hell and heaven, and so on. However, there are three basic needs Muslims have that the Quran does not give them, or Islam doesn't give them. And I usually begin with those. For example, if I meet a Muslim, and we're talking about all kinds of things, and he tells me or she tells me they pray five times a day, and they fast and do all these things. So I say, if you do these, are you sure you're going to heaven? They say, oh, no, God knows, we don't know, we'll never know. So even on the top level, the highest level of religious devotion, you'll find people saying, we do all these things that we still don't know. So they have eternal insecurity, and we need to give them that security and assure them that God uh, can guarantee them eternal life. And I give uh, usually uh, 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 an analogy. I ask if you drive a car, don't you pay for insurance and count on the insurance covering any accidents, any problems, and usually say yes. Say, well, how come a human agency like an insurance company is more reliable than God and your religion? And many people are shocked by this question, and that opens them up to uh, trying to understand what the Christian message is. This is one. And I have two other areas. If you want, uh, just run by them. Uh, please do, because one one that comes to mind, and give me some some insight here. If I'm if I'm kind of off the mark on this, um, for Muslims that that think of God as someone out there to be a feared, far away, exactly, yeah. and and then a Christian come along and and talk about knowing God and the personhood of Jesus Christ personally, and a loving, kind, compassionate God who sacrificed His only begotten Son. Yes that through which we can be saved, have our sins forgiven, and most importantly, uh, then to walk in fellowship, in relationship, restored with that loving God, it would seem to me, at least from what I know about Islam around the periphery, that these ought to be some keys that would be extremely fascinating to, to a Muslim. More than fascinating. They touch a chord in the heart because there is that need for intimacy with God, which they do not have. Their prayers are dry, ritualistic, you go to a mosque and see people bowing up and down. Look at their faces. Do you see any smile? Do you see any happiness? Do you see singing, rejoicing? You see a fear. You see guilt on their heads. 
they're trying to satisfy God or appease him with all these rituals or all these things. It's a works-oriented, more similar to the Jews, but even worse than that. Because even in the Jewish tradition, Old Testament, there's talk about not just uh, worshiping God with the mouth, but with the heart, circumcision of the heart, and so on. But uh, another major area is uh, need for forgiveness. In Islam, there is no assurance of forgiveness. Even if you repent, even if you a hundred times pray over and over, asking God to forgive you what you've done, there's no such assurance. So they live in guilt. And uh, we need to show them that God loves them and uh, will forgive them. One great image Muslims are very attracted to is God as a father. You mentioned that yourself. I remember a story of an Egyptian woman who was 25 years old, uh, covered completely, and she was passing by in her country, Egypt, a church, and she heard some music. So she went in covered. She knew that nobody would figure out who she is. So she watched from the back, and there was a choir director who was praying, and he said, Our Heavenly Father. When she heard that, that blew her away. And uh, that led to her investigating Christianity. She says, I want this father. There's also a book written by a Pakistani noblewoman. Uh, I dared to call him father is the name of her book. And she had the same experience when she heard that God can be her father when she was told all her life that he is so unapproachable. In fact, one uh, Muslim scholar wrote in a book that uh, it, don't you even attempt to know God because pursuit after God will only harm the seeker than help him. So, uh, yeah, we have an amazing good news that God loves you. God wants to forgive you. He doesn't want you to go to hell. He wants to give you eternal life if you would only accept uh, his provision for salvation, Jesus Christ. And I've found many who are more than excited to receive that message. Now, I've also heard it said, uh, the, the perception by some Christians, that they're going into um, an opportunity to share the gospel, uh, feeling very much ill at ease, the sense that, gee, uh, Muslims talk about praying to Mecca five times a day. Yeah. Uh, there's much talk about the influence of the Quran. Uh, the sense, perhaps, that, that that Muslims, by the very nature of the, um, um, what's the word that I'm looking for? Not not rigidity, that's not the right word, but the, the structure of yeah, uh, the religion uh, would, would tend to be, I mean, how many Christians do we know that pray five times a day? I bet there are a few out there that even do it once. Yeah. So there's that sense, I think, amongst some Christians that, gee, I go into this battle uh, in, in sharing my faith at a huge disadvantage because certainly... The Muslim knows their scripture much better than I even know mine. Is that necessarily true? No, and that's not at all true. Uh, one proof of <laughs> that is not true is that 80% of Muslims cannot read the Quran because it's in Arabic, and you can only read the Quran in Arabic. You can only pray in Arabic. And, uh, for example, you mentioned Indonesia. 200 million people don't know Arabic. Uh, India, 160 million people, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, Turkey, they have to pray in a foreign language. Like like if in the church now, all of a sudden, uh, our pastors decide that we should no longer pray in English. We should go back to the Greek and Hebrew, read our Bibles in Hebrew and Greek. How many Christians 
would really know their Bible if they had to read it in Hebrew and Greek. So most Muslims are illiterate in their religion, but they do know some things that are commonly held, commonly known, the five pillars, the six articles of belief. But these are taught sort of by rote. And you're not really required to understand Islam. You just need to be uh, doing the things that the Islamic tenets require. So that makes it really easier for us to approach them, and they're less frightening than we think. You encounter, of course, people who are uh, uh, polemic. By polemic, I mean confrontational, and they tell you the Bible is corrupted and we can't trust it, and Jesus didn't die on the cross and so on. But in 45 years of working with thousands of Muslims, I've had very few uh, such encounters. I've even held um, what you call debates and uh, give lectures in public in Muslim countries where hundreds of Muslims come to theaters, and I come up uh, on the podium and speak about the contrast between Jesus and Muhammad, and people thank me. Even imams have thanked me for enlightening them about uh, who Jesus is from the Bible and so on. So. Uh, There are two ways of looking at uh, Muslims. One is uh, fear, and uh, one is more hope and uh, positive thinking, and I choose to do that, especially that I've seen so many of them come to know Christ. My full-time work is with Muslims. I personally am engaged. I just don't write books. That's my job. If you read my book, you'll see... uh, I don't know how many stories are there, but almost every page has a story or two about my own encounters with Muslims. And I find this to be really exciting to see so many coming to know Christ and having a transformed life and excitement about life uh, as they meet Jesus. And, of course, this book, by the way, can become a wonderful tool, a great resource for you in in learning not just uh, what Muslims believe, why they believe it, some of the differences between those that are more religious-leaning versus more cultural uh, and then, too, most importantly, is some of the tools and information that you need uh, to better develop a relationship, develop a sense of trust, and then ultimately the opportunity to share your faith. The uh, last four chapters of the book are about how to engage practically, the kind of questions to ask, and if they ask you questions, how to answer them. It's quite practical, uh, with stories illustrating how I have done it with uh, different people. And believe me, it's not so difficult. I want to add one more thing. The most important thing in drawing people to Christ is the spiritual arena. One uh, Saudi guy came to me and said, Tell me about the Trinity. I'm confused. Tell me about Jesus being the Son of God. I explained for hours and over two weeks, and he didn't get it. So finally I said, Look in Matthew 16, and we read it together when Jesus asked, the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter stood up and shouted, he says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, hey, who told you that? It's not flesh and blood, it's not human beings, it's my Father in heaven who revealed that to you. So I asked the guy, pray and ask God to reveal his character to you, who he is, his nature. And he did. A week later he comes back to our regular meeting once a week, and he says, hey, I'm past that right now. Teach me the Bible. Mm. Uh, So it is a spiritual thing. No one will come to me unless the Father draws him, Jesus said. 
and uh, and the, it's the Holy Spirit's role to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And it's our job to, as clearly as possible, share the gospel, share your testimony, read the scriptures, parables, stories, whatever. Engage them with the Word of God, with the good news. And uh, Jesus warned us that not everybody will accept. He said, many are called, few are chosen. Few are chosen. That's right. Yeah, and we're glad for the few that are chosen. Even one out of a hundred, the heavens will uh, will celebrate uh, for the uh, repentance of one, uh, Luke fifteen ten. Amen. George Husney, we appreciate so much the time and the great resource, again, available to you, Engaging Islam, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area or through Amazon. Dot com. <laughs> Author George and now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're going to spend some time in this portion of the program talking about power. Now, at least you think we're going to dive into a bit of a thesis on how to reduce your energy bills and (laughs) save money. Uh, No, not quite that kind of power, but power nevertheless. A topic that while most of us don't spend a lot of time thinking about in a direct fashion, we nevertheless are engaged in it. Some of us exercise it. Others have a thirst or a yearning for it. It's something that we think about at certain levels, and yet we have this very odd relationship with power. We know certainly that the old adage, what is it, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But what of our relationship to this topic of power from a spiritual standpoint? My next guest tonight has taken some time to dive deeper into this very equation, and he details his findings and really kind of kind of pulling back, so to speak, the, the layers of the onion to help us better understand our relationship to power inside the pages of Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. It is written by author, executive editor of Christianity Today, Andy Crouch. And Andy, thanks so much for being on the program with us. Thank you, Craig. I'm delighted to be here. Fascinating topic. It's something that, as I say, well, we probably don't get up every day and think specifically about this topic. It's one that we're we're tied into on a day by day basis, and a lot of us find ourselves even in this in this struggle for or against power of one sort or another, uh, literally daily, don't we? It's part of being a human being. I think it's actually part of being a living. Any living creature uh, has some kind of power because power in the most basic sense, is just the ability to make a difference in the world, to make some kind of change in the world. And if you're alive, you're doing that one way or another. But as human beings, we have much more complex kinds of power than other creatures do, other parts of creation do. And that's ultimately because we're, we're made in the image of God in, in a way that other creatures aren't. And I think that's why every human being, um, you know, you mentioned a yearning for power. Every human being kind of wants room to, to make something of value and worth. But then also this has become very distorted uh, by our own sin and the ways that we've uh, distanced ourselves from God. Indeed, we see uh, laid out literally from the Garden of Eden uh, the capacity of power to either do good or do evil. And then it seems as if it's been a, a history-long, lifelong struggle for mankind in trying to deal with well, what exactly is our relationship to power? What do we do with it? Why do we yearn for it? How do we corrupt it? How do we drive it in the right direction so that it can, in fact, do more good than it does evil? 
you know, when you, when you lay it out like that, you realize in a way the whole story of Scripture is a story about power. It's about the original power that human beings were meant to have. They're made in the image of God. They're the climax of creation in Genesis 1. And they're given dominion, you know, that's a power word, over the whole creation. These very frail, vulnerable creatures, just like you and me, are, are told that they're to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and, you know, all this stuff that pre-technological humanity couldn't directly control. And yet they're given this vision that they're there to represent the Creator in the midst of creation. But then something goes very wrong, and I think you'd sum it up by saying they try to uh, declare, depend, uh, declare independence from God. They try to separate themselves from God and use their power for themselves. And the power that we were meant to have, which was meant to be the, for the flourishing of the whole world, ends up being kind of turned in on our own uh, benefit, our own self-protection. And then the question becomes, how is God going to intervene to set this story right, and that in many ways is, is the story of the rest of the Bible. And it really is amazing, as you point out. I mean, literally, in the opening chapter of Genesis, we see the first action of God, a display of his power, <laughs> as he engages in his creative power to bring about planet Earth. Then we see, later on, once mankind is about the scene, uh, first an account of the power struggle between Lucifer and God himself, right. and then later on, man's power struggle as we engage in this battle in the Garden of Eden. And it seems as if this, this issue of kind of a, a power struggle with God or against God has kind of been a component from day one, hasn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. And this was actually true even in the world where the, where the book of Genesis was first written down, because the other creation stories that were told by the, the gods of Babylon or the, you know, the religion of Babylon all said that the world began with a conflict. Uh, they were all conflict stories. The amazing thing about Genesis 1 is it does not have, it doesn't begin with conflict. The conflict comes in later, and the, the root conviction of Genesis 1 is that when God uses his creative power, it brings only abundance. It's not kind of a zero-sum game where if I win, you lose, or if you win, I lose. Instead, you get more and more flourishing. Uh, what happens, though, when the man and the woman are tempted, <laughs> and when they give into that, and when that sets in motion really history as we know it, is power becomes about conflict, and it becomes about competition. It's no longer about mutual flourishing, where we actually both could win. It's about one of us is going to, to dominate uh, the other, or one force is going to dominate the other. And we start to believe that that's the realist form of power, that the, the most real power is the power that can make you do something you don't want to do, rather than the power that can call into being a world or new kinds of creativity, new kinds of culture, uh, that actually benefits everyone. So what's fascinating about this, then, is we really get pulled into this topic, Andy, of power in relationship to whether it's being used for uh, malevolent purposes or, on the other hand, malevolent purposes, mm -hmm. that impacts every relationship that we have. I mean, certainly it, it, with God, I mean, sin is what better description of the power struggle yeah. uh, that exists between mankind and God uh, than to see sin and, and how that power fight's going on. And not just, though, on the vertical plane, but even on the horizontal plane in our relationships. Yeah. I mean, think of the young teenager who's rebelling against his parents, and all of a sudden there's this power struggle that we see that's being displayed there. E even the friction between husband and wife and relationships at that level 
oftentimes are, are demonstrative of this fight over power. They really are about power, and, uh, and, and I think that's because in many ways it's the, most, it's the most fundamental thing we're given to work with as human beings, either for good or for bad. Um, and so you do find it in every relationship, actually, every workplace, every church, every family, and, and most of us, realistically, the place where most of us have the most power is in our family relationships, especially if we're parents. But even, even as, as those of us who are parents know, children have tremendous power in their relationship with their parents. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, that's why so much of the Bible story is the story of families that either get it somewhat right, never entirely right, uh, and sometimes get it terribly wrong. Um, and, you know, again, we often think, you know, when we think of power, I think we often think of, you know, politics or perhaps military power, and those are very real. But when I started to dive into this issue, I realized actually all of us confront these issues every single day. I confront it in my own home, not just when I'm out doing allegedly powerful things, but even in choosing how I relate to my wife and my children, my neighbors. It happens at every scale of human society. Well, even deeper than that, perhaps, Andy, is the the power struggle that goes on internally. I mean, look, for example, Paul talked about, you know, spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I know to do good, and yet I do what not. Daily I have to die unto the flesh. Don't we see demonstrated there, in that sense, an internal power struggle going on? Do we yield to God? Do we yield to the devil? Who's going to kind of get control here? I think that's an amazing observation. And what it always, I think, uh, for many people, the real question in life is not actually, does God exist? I think most people know God exists. And Paul says even those who don't believe that sort of suppress the truth. They still know the truth. But the real question is, is God good? <laughs> and, and especially if I serve God, well, does that mean I have to give up things I want? Does that mean I have to give up what's good? And the, the root of, of every abuse of power is the idea that, that we can't both get something good. Either I and God, I can't, God can't get what's you know, good for God and good for me, or you and I, if we get locked in a power struggle, we start to believe either I win or you win. And when that enters into our relationship with God, we've basically believed the very thing the serpent says in Genesis uh, 3, which is God's actually jealous of his power, and he doesn't want you to have all of it, so you better eat that fruit so that you'll have what God doesn't want you to have. And that's the fundamental lie, that God wants you to have something that would actually be good for you, but that God doesn't want you to have. And that's that's an amazing point that you make there, because there is an aspect of this power that we define in the flesh. And I mean, we just bring up the topic. We think of power. It's the energy to drive to do something, to accomplish something. And we often think that, well, the greatest display of power is when we're flexing our muscles to use power, failing perhaps to recognize that it's somehow there's, there's another aspect that can show how powerful we can be that in the flesh might seem to be weak, but in the spiritual realm is in fact very powerful. We'll talk a bit about that too as we continue our conversation today. Andy Crouch on the line with us today. He, executive editor of Christianity Today and the author of a new book called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. We'll come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues here on KFAX. KFAX. 